Hello and welcome back to the Institute of World Mission podcast. Today we are returning to a special series we've launched last year. It's a series of episodes where Gabriela Phillips discusses the meaning and significance of honor and shame values. The reality is most of us as cross-cultural mission expatriates serve and work in cultures where honor and shame deeply shapes the psyche, the worldview, the relationships, the community interactions, basically everything. Those of you listeners who come from cultures built around honor and shame values understand this intuitively. If this is you, please write to us, to Gabriela or myself. Help us fill in wherever this series is leaving some gaps. Your help will be a huge honor to us. Now, if honor and shame values sound pretty much foreign to you, Well, this series is a place to begin growing this essential cultural capability for Adventist missionaries. Friends, you know this, but let me reiterate, we are into a lifelong learning journey with the God who is at the forefront of mission. He's our teacher. He's our leader. And as is the motto of our podcast, we learn and grow because it is such a privilege to be cross-cultural missionaries in such a time as this. I know as Adventist missionaries, you truly understand what I'm talking about. Welcome to the Institute of World Mission Weekly Podcast, a show for Adventist mission enthusiasts striving to live, serve, and witness cross-culturally. Visit us at iwm.adventist.org podcast to view this podcast's show notes, links, and previous episodes. Institute of World Mission is your partner in the mission field. Just before Gabriella will introduce her counterpart and immerse us into the topic of telling stories that build honor, a couple more notes, friends. You'll be able to find previous episodes in this series in the show notes. We will list them all right there, so please do check them out as well as find our special page on our website where we highlight the entire series. It's like a homepage for this series. We call it a special theme or featured theme page, one of the featured theme pages on our website, which is devoted to the topic of honor and shame. We also run a separate forum to facilitate the discussion. If you have any questions or want to connect with Gabriela, or other community members interested in this topic, you'll love the forum. Just remember, both the featured theme page, the honor and shame page, and the forum are accessible only if you have the IWM membership. What IWM membership is, it's a free account on our website. You only need to register for it. As always, we trust you have found a way to subscribe to the IWM podcast. Best is to do it in a podcast app of your choice. To make sure new episodes are downloaded to your device ready for you to listen. And secondly, if you subscribe to the podcast weekly email updates, you'll be notified about the new episodes with all basic information about them. This is the way for you not to miss anything. Having said all that, let us jump straight into the interview itself. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode on our series of Honor and Shame. With me, Gabby Phillips, I'm the Director for Adventist and Muslim Relations for the North American Division. And today I'm pleased to bring before you Dr. Gerard House, 
From now on, he will be only Gerald because I'm speaking to my friend. Dr. Whitehouse has served to the World Church for 14 years in the area of Adventist Muslim Relations. He was the General Conference Director. And before that, he brings a pretty large and rich story or history of engagement with people from different cultures through his various ADRA positions, both at the Washington, D.C., Central Office in Sudan. Gerald, where else did you work besides Sudan and Bangladesh? Well, we started in Libya, first of all, back in 1967. Three years in Libya, then later when we left Libya because of the nationalization of our hospital there. We did three years in Lebanon. I was a local pastor in East Mediterranean field in Lebanon. Then later in Sudan for five years and Bangladesh after that for four years. Wow. So stories is something that you are very familiar with. And today, actually, the topic that uh, we have chosen to explore together with Gerald is how can we tell stories that honor people, but also that illustrate and help people to understand the way that God wants to restore their honor. So welcome back, Gerald, and thank you so much for being willing to spend this time with us. It's an honor to be present with you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Gerald, let's get this going. We are talking about stories. Why do we need to use stories? I mean, isn't that kind of a childish thing? Stories, you know, is what we tell the kids before they go to sleep. But why using stories with grown-up people? Well, we all relate to stories, even as grown-ups. Some of the best preachers that I'm aware of, even in the Western world, the stories are what stand out in their sermons and catch your attention and illustrate points and so forth. In the Western mind, of course, we usually use stories to illustrate a point that we're trying to make. We usually talk about a certain concept and then we illustrate it with a story. And that's effective for us in the Western world. In the Eastern world, stories are more the actual central thing. The story is what gives the meaning. So in either the Western context or the Eastern context, stories are important. I like something that you mentioned when we were preparing for this conversation a couple of minutes ago, that stories in the Eastern mind create meanings. And what I heard you saying is that they bring new possibilities. They bring things together that perhaps we hadn't brought together in that same way. And by seeing things from that perspective, suddenly there is a new horizon of hope and opportunities before us that uh, stories create. So uh, thank you so much for using that particular expression that the Eastern mindset sees stories as a place for creating meaning. Gerald, would you tell us a little bit, how can stories actually honor people? Why, why would we use stories for honoring people? Well, everyone relates to a story regardless of your background. When we're just talking in concepts, we are approaching the idea that we're trying to express from our particular paradigm of thinking, our way of thinking. But when we tell a story, everyone from whatever background can relate to the story. Each person from their various background may see different aspects of the story or may be impressed with certain things in the story in a different way, but everyone can relate to the story. So in that sense, when we tell a story, 
it's as if we're honoring the person by we're speaking their language. It's something they can relate to. Whereas if we're only dealing in concepts, then some people from a different background may have difficulty relating to that and may feel kind of left out or not getting it. With a story, they can immediately relate to it and get meaning out of it. You know, Gerard, as I hear you relating this, I actually remember a story myself. This happened two Christmas ago. We had a large number of Muslim people in a living room, and we were telling them the story of the birth of Jesus and trying to make those connections between the Quran and the Bible. And at the end of the, the conversation, one Palestinian lady came close and said how much she had enjoyed the story and how important it is that the angels had come and sang at the birth of Jesus. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, music is very important to us. And she goes like, no, 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 it's part of our tradition. Back in the days that when a baby born is born, people will come from the community and sing at the door of that particular family. And then it suddenly dawned on me why the angels came to sing to Jesus. Because you see, (laughs) Mary was having a baby out of wedlock. Who in the community was coming to greet them? Who were the neighbors that were going to show up and said, hey, this baby's welcome? Well, it was the heavenly neighborhood. It were the angels. And suddenly that story took in a completely new meaning that, that this baby was born not just peace on earth, but it's peace in heaven too. And so that opened all number of possibilities of exploring who Jesus was in ways that would have never, ever happened if I had go with my, my traditional world, Jesus is blah, blah, blah. So absolutely, I agree with that. Gerald, would you like to explore very briefly the idea of saving face through storytelling? Obviously, this was exemplified in Jesus' use of stories, but in our own lives and our relationships, by telling a story, we can make a critical point, maybe even a point that we're wanting to make of pointing out a fault or pointing out a shortcoming in a situation or in a person But by telling the story, the person themselves will make the application. Others in the audience or others also hearing the story may not know the specific application in that person's situation. So it saves that person's dignity and honor, uh, but yet makes the the point clear. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we've been really Westerners ourselves talking about stories and elaborating concepts, but we haven't told stories yet. So why don't we do that? Why don't we transition now and tell us a story that throughout your ministry you had found that had been very meaningful in, in doing this very thing, opening new possibilities for thinking about God, about oneself and how we relate to one another. Probably the best story, and that's even a weak way to say it. It's not just the best story. It is the best of the best stories, is the story of the uh, gracious father and the lost son. We call it the prodigal son, but really the story, I think, is about the father and how the father restores honor in the family, restores the son to honor, restores his own honor in the community. So, yeah, I have found this story to be perhaps one of the most effective stories in illustrating God's forgiveness and how God restores us to honor and restores himself and his own name to honor. So so would you tell us a story? The story is familiar to us, but I would like to tell it in a little different way. 
we're talking about shame honor. So the story was told very much in a shame honor context originally. And so what was the impact? What was the meaning of the story when Jesus told the story? So here we have a family, the father and his two sons. And the younger son, interestingly, comes to his father and says, Dad, I need my inheritance now. Now, those of us from a Western background don't really catch the significance or the impact of the second son asking for his inheritance. The inheritance was passed on when the father passes away and not before. So here is the second son, uh, the younger son, basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you'd get out of the way so that I could have my inheritance. And I want it now. So the first shame that comes upon this family is this boy doing the unthinkable and basically saying to his dad, I wish you'd pass on so that I could have my inheritance, but please give it to me now. And the normal reaction of a father in that culture, in that context, would be to basically slap this boy up the side of the head and say, look, I don't want to hear this kind of talk from you again, and if I do, your suitcase is on the doorstep. So it would be a rather strong reaction from the father to this very shameful request. But this father is different. This father tries to remonstrate with his son, tries to reason with him, but to no success. And so he finally turns the portion of that is coming to this son over to him. Interestingly, the son sells it very quickly and gets out of town. And probably the reason he does that, first of all, he simply doesn't want to stay around. He wants to get away from home. Joel, let me freeze that moment for a minute here. It seems to me that what you are saying is that this request of money is just the tip of the iceberg, that underneath there is a, a number of meaning that might be invisible and had to do with him saying, I no longer wish to be part of this family. So it's really breaking of relationships. It's not a money transaction that we are looking into. Am I reading this right? Very definitely. This isn't just an exchange of property. This property is life in the Eastern understanding. Yeah, your and identity and the identity of those before you and after you right. is all tied to that specific land. Exactly. Right. So... This is unthinkable for this to happen, but this father concedes to it. And, and so what gives, happened after that? Gives the property to the son. So the son mm -hmm. leaves. Okay. He leaves quickly because he knows that this is a shameful thing and the community will rise up against him if he doesn't get out of town. So he runs quickly, runs to a far country because the community begins to wonder what in the world is going on here. So this spreads beyond just the immediate family. They're a part of a community. This man is probably a respected elder in the village. He may be a member of the village council. And so the community begins to wonder, why is this happening? What's wrong with this man? Why can't he take responsibility as a father and you know, do what's necessary to restore the honor in his family? And probably the village council members come and visit him one day and because stories start coming back from this distant country and they hear about what this boy is doing. And so it's not just the immediate actions of him 
taking the property, selling it, and because once he starts selling the property, that becomes public knowledge, of course. Right, right, right. And they come to the father, and they say, what's happening here? And the father tries to make some excuse that, well, no major problem, just we're having to make some adjustments here. But then the stories start coming back from the distant country as well about what this son is doing and spending the money and, and so forth. And probably some of those stories are a little exaggerated. I mean, we know how things work in uh, this kind of communities. <laughs> yeah, that may be true. But even if they're not exaggerated, they're bad enough. Yeah. And so they come to the father and they say, look, you need to do something about this. You need to restore the honor to your family. And what they mean by that is, at the very least, he needs to disown this son and mm -hmm. say, he's no longer my son. But he simply quietly responds to them and says, but he is still my son. And time goes on and the stories get worse, perhaps more exaggerated, but actually there's enough truth in them that they begin to realize this is not good. This is not only bringing shame on the particular family, it is bringing shame on the community. Because you're known from by what family you're from, by who your father is, what your tribal relationships are, what community you come from. So the community is actually being dishonored and shamed as well. So finally, the elders in the village come to this father. And I'm adding some of these details simply from our experience within Eastern cultures and how things work. And I'm sure they come to the father and they say, look, It seems that you can't restore honor to your family, but now this has become a community issue and we are going to take responsibility and we are going to make sure that our honor is restored. Hmm. The father understands at this point that they're serious and realizes that what they mean is they're going to send someone to take care of this boy. And by that, they mean they'll take him out, they'll kill him to restore honor. That's the human response within Sorry, uh, Gerald, is culture. that why some people refer to these kind of killings, honor killings? Yeah, it's real. So the father at this point, realizing the seriousness of, of their threat and of, of their intent to restore honor in this way, looks them with steel in his eyes and with clear emphasis in his voice. He says, you don't touch my son. At this point, they leave shaking their head. They cannot understand this. This is totally out of the ordinary, beyond their imagination. At this point, this father becomes totally isolated. Yeah, um, I don't think we understand from a Western viewpoint, we don't understand the seriousness of isolating a person in an Eastern village. This means every time he goes out of his house and walks down the street and walks by the shops, you know, people kind of turn away. They don't greet him. One can't live this way in an eastern village. It is essentially almost a death sentence. Not only for the person, because I'm thinking right now, what happened to the sisters of this young man? No honorable family in the community want to give them their sons in marriage. Yeah, good point. So the family is totally alone. This story has often been criticized in some ways by saying, well, where's the sacrifice in this story? 
if we're really using this story as an illustration of how God deals with sinners, how God deals with sin and the sin problem, where's the sacrifice? Well, this man, this father, and this family bear the shame alone. They are totally isolated mm. from their community. They lost their so, reputation. And so he waits, hoping. And uh, another thing that's kind of more recently come clear to my own mind, I used to think of this situation, I would visualize it as, here's the father living in his house on a nice 50-acre ranch. That's kind of a Western model. Here's this nice ranch house, nice front porch, all the fields around it, and a nice lane or driveway coming up to the house. And he's sitting there on the porch waiting for his son to come down that driveway into his farm. Not so in the Eastern context. The houses are in the village. The farms are outside the village. People live in the village. That's where their houses are. And then they go out to their land to work on their land. So this father's house is somewhere in the village. Maybe it's on the edge of the village. I don't know. It's probably at least a two-story house, maybe a two-story house, or maybe just one floor. I don't know. But he's probably sitting up on his roof of his house where he can kind of see outside of the village to the roadway leading into the village. And there he waits alone. He's been isolated from the community. And one day he sees that figure and he recognizes it immediately. Just a little point about the son. You know, he's in this far country and he spends all his money. And finally, no one will help him except he's given a job feeding pigs. Talk about shameful. Pigs, of course, are the worst animal in the Eastern mind. The smell, the stench, the filth. It says he finally comes to himself. He concocts a plan. He creates his own way out of the situation. But he does remember his father kindness to him but it really hasn't had that much impact as yet but he says maybe I can go back and I'll tell him that I've made a mistake I'll tell him that I've done wrong and I've made a big error and one of the commentators on this story that I have appreciated so much who looks at the story from an eastern viewpoint is Kenneth Bailey's mm -hmm. book on Luke 15 from the cultural standpoint he basically says, the son says to himself, I will go back and I will tell my father that I have done wrong. And then there's a phrase there that in most translations says, make me one of your hired servants. Bailey asserts that that is better translated. The meaning of it is, train me as a tradesman or as a craftsman. Send me for training as a craftsman. So this boy is concocting his own plan to restore his own honor. If his father will simply send him out away from the town to somewhere where he can get trained as a craftsman, he'll come back, he'll set up shop, and he'll gradually over the years earn enough money to pay back what he has taken from the family. And that way he will restore his own honor. What is clear, Jura, for what you are saying in the story is that he has not understood what has been his real sin. He still thinks that as long as I can restore the money that I take it away, 
that would be good enough. And so his yeah. solution is an economic, materialistic solution. But it's very obvious from the beginning that that was not the concern of the father. Otherwise, he would have not given him the money in the first place. All right, exactly. So the son decides to go back. The father is waiting, looking down out over the other houses of the village to the road coming into the village. And when he sees that boy, his son, he immediately runs out into the street, runs down the street, pulls his robe up around him, and runs down the street. Now, he runs by all these shops going out of, as he, on the way out of the village. An older man in the village doesn't run. An older man in the village walks with honor. But this man has borne the shame alone, this father. And so running, which is a shame for an older man, pulling his robe up around him so that he can run, it doesn't bother. He's borne the shame. He must meet his son. And why must he meet his son out there? It's more than just his longing and his heart desire to be with his son and to embrace his son and to welcome his son back. It is more than that. He understands that if he doesn't get to the son first, the son will start coming into the village. The village will get to him first, and that will not be good because the village still remembers what that boy has done in dishonoring the family and dishonoring the village. Mm -hmm. And they will take care of that boy if he doesn't get to him first. So this father runs out of the village, down the road, to meet his son before the village can get to him mm -hmm. and take care of him. Wow, what a picture. And when he reaches that son, the boy begins to stammer out his solution. What is, he simply says, I have sinned, I have done wrong. He doesn't get to the point of his solution, suggesting send me for training as a craftsman. The father interrupts him immediately and says to the servants, because the servants are running after the father, wondering what in the world is going on here. They're running after him. And so he turns to one of the servants and he says, put a ring on his finger, put the robe on him. And by the way, have you ever smelled pigs? This boy has been with pigs. Mm, defiled. Um, <laughs> I've been downwind from a pig pen, and you can mm. smell it a mile away. <laughs> so everybody and, knows that he's been with pigs in yeah, a Jewish he, village. That's not very helpful. <laughs> so he puts the robe of honor around this boy to cover the stench, to cover the filth, puts the ring on his finger, restores him to a position in the family and puts shoes on his feet. He's come back barefoot. Mm. What a shame. But he puts sandals on his feet, shoes mm. on his, in his feet, restoring him to honor. And then he says, let's celebrate. Bring wow. the prize calf, the selected calf, and let's have a party. So this father has sacrificed his honor in the family. He sacrificed his honor in the village. He has risked his own life. He has run to intervene in meeting his son before the village can get a hold of that son and beat him severely, perhaps even to kill him because of the dishonor he's brought on that community as well. He restores the son to honor and says, let's celebrate. Wow. wow. What a picture of grace, you know, is that which is undeserved 
And here is this nobody suddenly being restored as a son. Going along with the message of this interview, I'd like to bring to your attention a special online course that we have available on the IWM website. It's called Storytelling for Discipleship. It's an ideal resource if you are ready to be building people's honor by telling stories. Storytelling for Discipleship is a recent online video course we published. It will empower you to be a more effective disciple maker for Jesus. At the Institute of World Mission, we have a passion, friends, to help Adventist missionaries truly be disciple makers. And our hearts go out to the many missionaries who become frustrated when traditional approaches, including the proof text Bible studies method, fail them in oral storytelling cultures. Now, we want to help you combat this challenge. To find the course, look for the link in the show notes. It's called Storytelling for Discipleship. Gerald, what do you think it happened to the community? I mean, everybody's watching. They have been invited to this party. What does these stories do to them? I think as the village observes this whole drama, it must sink into their heart and into their mind. Wow, this is a whole new paradigm, a whole new mm, way of restoration. thinking. Yeah. And of course, Jesus, when he told the parable, we have to realize he was really telling the parable about God. This father represents how God restores honor, restores us to honor, restores his own honor. Because the father invites the village to the party. Right. right. And so, they come. Well, I they, wonder what kind of conversations were going on in the homes these days, you know, Guess who invited us for a party? Well, so-and-so. Well, are you going? I mean, we were going to kill this guy till this morning. And does he expect us to go and celebrate with him tonight? And so I bet there were discussions in every home. What are we going to do? Are we going to join the father in this act of grace and see that one of our son that was lost is found? Or are we going to say... Forget it, you're crazy, and now you're even more crazy, and I'm sorry, but I'm not participating in this. I bet there was some some tension there. Well, I'm sure there was a whole range of reactions. Some got it and and said, wow, we're going. We're going to celebrate too. Others stood at a distance or held themselves at a distance. And some probably said, well, we'll go, but we still don't understand what's going on here. Others said, no, we're not going to go. Obviously, some didn't go because the story ends, latter part of the story, part two of the story, is the older son, the older brother, who comes back from his work out on the farm. So this reinforces the picture of the house being in the village and the farm being outside. So he comes back into the village from working out on the land, hears this music and dancing, wonders what in the world is going on, calls one of the servants and says... What's happening? And the servant says, well, your brother has returned and your father is celebrating. It's interesting that the older boy, the brother, older brother says, becomes very angry and refuses to go in. So the father comes out and pleads with him. Now, here's another ignoring of the shame. This was an insult to the father again of this older son refusing to go in to celebrate participate in the celebration so the father actually again doesn't worry about the shame 
goes out and pleads with his son. It seems, Gerald, that actually this embarrassment is even bigger than the, the first one. And the reason I'm saying this is because, number one, the first one is the youngest son, okay? Yes. That carries a, a bit of a different weight in the story. And the second thing is that it's done in private. I mean, the kid went home and told that, hey, I'm out of this family. I'm done. Just give me the money. Let me just get off. And so all the drama is happening within the house. But this is now in front of the whole village. Yes. And no other than the oldest son, who should be the mediator, he is the one who's saying, your solution is absolutely unacceptable to me, and I'm not having it. And now everybody's watching what is the father going to do. And like you say, the father leaves the house to go and plead with the son. I mean, wow, that's huge. Yes. Notice that the son doesn't refer to him as his brother. He says, that boy of yours, that son of yours. <laughs> so he, in essence, is distancing himself from the family as well. And he responds angrily to his own father and accuses the father and saying, I've been with you all these years and you didn't even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. So, yeah, the reactions obviously... Some of the village were like the older brother, didn't come. They said, no, we're not going to lower ourselves to get involved with this. Gerald, why is this story left open? It's like it's hanging there. What happened to that son? Why this story ends up this way? Well, Kenneth Bailey in his book actually writes what is the ending of the story that the father wishes for. He adds an extra verse. This is Kenneth Bailey's edition, but it is the ending that the father longs for. And the older son embraced his father and entered the house and was reconciled to his brother and to his father. And the father celebrated together with his two sons. Now that's the ending of the story that we wish would have happened. Mm. But Jesus in his telling of the story didn't end the story that way. And I suppose... It leaves it open for each of us to place ourselves in the story. Yeah, to step in and step take a place there. Yeah. I can see why, because at the beginning of the story, actually, Jesus is talking about who is lost and he's defining. And here we have that this man actually had two sons and both of them were lost in different ways, but they both were lost. And the answer for both of them is the same, is the embrace of the father. Yeah. Who is willing to give up the reputation. Gerald, this is such a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing the layers of meaning behind the stories. I don't think we can ever read them again in the same way after we have seen it. So thanks again. And I don't know if you have any last thought before we wrap this up with a bit of a summary. Well, just in my own experience of sharing this story in various settings, the impact that it has had when we tell it this way, when we share it, and when we understand the context, the original context in which the story was told, and the response that I get from people who are currently living in shame on our cultures, they get it. They see it in a whole new light. And it's just been gratifying to see the impact that the story has when we understand it in this way. Yes, thank you. Actually, a few months ago, there was a shooting in New Zealand. 
And I remember that day we had organized a gathering of between Adventists and Muslims. And we had a number of people who came and obviously they were hurt. There was anger. There was confusion. For some reason, this shooting, even though it was in New Zealand, it really hit the Muslim community, especially the refugee community. And some of them kind of brought back some of the memories like, oh, we thought we are safe in the West and we are not. I have no idea why, but I pray that afternoon, God, what story would you like me to, to share with these people? And I felt very impressed to bring the story of the prodigal son, which obviously there was not a very clear connection in my mind. Why? And still there is not. But anyway, I did. Maybe out of 25 people, half of them suddenly were just tearing with a story. I mean, there was tears in the room. There was a sense of like, wow. And at the end of the story, something clicked on my mind that I hadn't seen before. And it's the fact that by telling them the story, it takes the focus away from the wrongdoing of people and the blaming game Yes. to something that is above all of those, both sides, you know? And we can say, well, you know, the shooter is in one side, the other son is in the other side. I don't know how they read it, actually. But what it became clear is that the conversation shifted from who did what, the guilt or the blame, to, wow, we do have someone that is willing to give up his reputation, is willing to run, is willing to pursue, is powerful enough to protect. I mean, the father had the ability and the possibility to turn around and say, you bring sandals and a ring and bring the robe, which are all signs of authority. So this is a person authority that is willing to use his authority to protect. And so it changed the direction of the conversation towards God. And I found that very beautiful. And obviously, Gerald, you have masterfully shared the story in a way that helps us to engage all our senses. So the story becomes more of an experience and an invitation to enter into the story. So thank you so much. And I just want to take a couple of minutes to summarize what we have talked today because I'm a Westerner, I guess, and that's the kind of things we do. <laughs> we talk about how stories are meaningful because they communicate much better culturally. People from different cultural perspectives can always get something out of the story. And also age-wise, you know, Jesus told stories and everybody was able to grasp something of the story depending the depth of their understanding and the capacity age-wise. The stories have this possibility of creating meanings. You know, you bring things together that were disconnected before and you see them in a new light. And by creating these new possibilities, it creates new thinking. And in the stories, what we see is always, at least in the biblical stories, it's a reversal in which God takes a shame upon himself. There are so many stories and the common thread is God takes a shame upon himself and he releases not what we deserve, that that's what the brother would have called justice in the story. But he releases grace and it's a response that is rooted on himself and on his love, regardless yeah. of the person who is there to receive it or not. We talk also how stories are very helpful to saving faith because often we feel that we need to tell the person something wrong that he did to put it right, but we forget to have the same level of passion towards protecting that person's heart. So when the story does, is that gives an eye on the heart of the person and one eye on the issue. 
without having to sacrifice both. And the truth is that when we approach people with issues in this way of seeking to protect their honor, and they can receive that as a loving expression, it's more likely that changes will happen that when we go accusing, even though my, we might be right, but it might not generate the right response. And finally, the stories often leave spaces for us to jump into the story and to participate in the story and to write an ending. And this is why so much of Jesus' ministry actually was done through stories because the story wasn't finished. And the story is still on the writing and we get to be part of it. And so by sharing a story, we can invite the person who's listening to the story and says, well, where are you in this story? And what in the story is God's invitation to you right now? Just before I had this conversation with Gerald, I was downstairs with an Iraqi sister who's going through a period of crisis. And I share a story of Jesus. And I said, well, what do you think he's telling you right now? And he says, well, that he wants to give me his salam, his shalom. And she used the Arabic word salam. And I said, well, would you like to ask him for that salam? So salam. So we just pray down there. And if I had tried to witness to her and explain things, it would have never happened. But the story opened that her heart for her to be willing to invite Jesus salam to come to her. So thank you, Gerald. And to those of you who are joining us today, God bless you. And I hope that you start reading the stories, not like kindergarten stories, but that you graduate these stories and take them to college and university and see that they are profound, meaningful, rich, and very beautiful. Thank you so much, Gerald. Thank you for the opportunity. God bless. Bye-bye. Just one wish from my side as we conclude. Please share this episode or recommend the entire podcast to your colleagues, friends, family members. It's up to us to make the conversation about Adventist missions an important part of our missions experience in ministry. Remember, it's a lifelong learning journey. Well, we hope for this podcast to be part of it. Let's build it together. Let's build together our learning journey for God's glory. My name is Alex Ott, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week.